nice to wake up and praise God first thing, isn't it? As opposed to yelling at traffic or shaking your fist at the computer screen, ah, right? I'm excited because today we are starting a new series. It's entitled Bystander, John and the Rabbi from Nazareth. So here's what we're going to be doing. For the next few weeks, we're going to be walking alongside of the Apostle John as he walked alongside of Jesus. But before we dig in, I, I want to take a moment and highlight a tension. And it's a tension that, that John addressed in his gospel, and, and I'll talk about that a lot. I talk about the tension that we have to maintain as followers of Jesus because we're following the king of the universe, and we live in a physical universe. And so we are always going to have this pull between our world and between the next world. So we have to be able to see these things as we read through the scripture. And as we move through this series, we're going to see over and over again the way that John handled two of the most misused and misunderstood words in the Christian tradition. And those words are belief and faith. Now maybe you're with me But I always find it fascinating and interesting how religion has a way of unnecessarily complicating things. It really does. Because, for example, in a non-religious context, the definitions of belief and faith are pretty straightforward. Let me show you what I mean here. Belief, the definition is this, something one accepts as true or real or also a firmly held opinion or conviction. That's belief. And faith is similar, it's complete trust or confidence in someone or something. But in a religious context, the clarity of those definitions becomes a bit fuzzy. You see, in the real world where we work and and we play and we raise our families and we enjoy our friends and all the stuff we do here in the real world, we believe things based upon evidence. We make decisions about what we believe or what we don't believe based upon the things we see or the things we hear or the things we read. By the way, that's one of the reasons we feel so unsettled as a society today is because we've lost confidence in our sources of information, right? I mean, that's the hard part. We don't know who to believe anymore. We were growing up, though. We were taught that nine times nine equals what? 81, very good, mathematicians, 9 times 9 equals 81. But upon learning that, did you run home and line up 9 rows of 9 things and then count them to make sure that your teacher was telling you the truth, that 9 times 9 equals 81? You probably didn't do that. If you did that, come talk to me afterwards. But we didn't do that for the most part. We, We just believed because we heard what our teachers told us And we had confidence in our teachers. And if our teachers consistently told us things that were always true, then we developed over time faith in them as truth tellers, right? All that means that there are basically two ways that we come to believe in things and then have faith in people or things that helped us believe. We examine evidence. Or, if we don't have evidence in front of us, we have confidence in the person giving us information about the evidence. That's what we most of the time do. We don't read the medical studies, but we do read people who report on the medical studies for us, as an example. 
All of us in our real world experience know what it means to believe in something and we all know what it means to have faith in something. And in this series, we're going to discover that contrary to what we might think, faith and belief don't take on any special meaning when they're used within the context of Christianity. It's not any different. Now, I have to say these things because when it comes to our religious faith, so many people feel that it's necessary to divorce our religious faith from reason. So many people feel it's necessary to take our religious faith and separate it from our normal understanding of the words belief and faith and then tie it to some secular definition of hope. And here's what I mean. I think we all know what hope is. But for some reason, when it comes to Christianity or when it comes to religion in general, the word hope seems to take on a life of its own. And it gets divorced from reason. Here's what I mean. Hope becomes something akin to the act of willing or or wishing something that we want to happen, to happen. Think of it this way. Oh, I, I hope he shows up today. Or I hope I win the Powerball. That's hope. That's the normal version of hope. And that kind of hope, it's not a bad thing at all. You can hope things. That's fine. But it's not the same thing as belief. And it's not the same thing as faith. Those things are different. When it comes to Christianity, though, some of you were told to believe regarding God. You just have to believe. A lot of people are taught that when they grow up in their church environment. You just have to believe. Why? You just have to believe. You just have to have faith. But the truth is, you're not going to find an admonition like that in the teachings of Jesus. Or quite frankly, you're not going to find that admonition anywhere in the New Testament. No one's going to tell you, you just have to believe. You just have to have faith. So what does the Bible say about belief and faith? Well, as we walk with Jesus through John's gospel, we're going to see an entirely different paradigm, and that is a good thing. Dr. Frank Turek, who was the apologetics professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary, here's what he said, and this is really a good quote. The reason that so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is that they were never talked into it in the first place. They weren't given the reasons for it. They were just told, believe. They were just told, you have to have faith. Is that what you were told? Were you told that by your parents, maybe? Or your grandparents? Or your Sunday school teacher? Or your pastor? Or your youth pastor? Were you told to just believe? Trust me, just believe. But then you heard, or you read, or you were taught something different. Maybe you watched a YouTube video, or you watched something on TikTok, and it presented something that contradicted what you were told. Did you just one day find yourself thinking, you know, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to have faith. And did you find that when you came to that realization, you just stopped? You just stopped having faith in Jesus? You just stopped believing? Because no one ever helped you to understand why you had faith, why you had belief, why those were reliable. No one ever helped you in the first place. Well, we're going to fix that. That's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to fix that. So, first, what we'll do is pray. Won't you join me? Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together as your ecclesia, as your community. 
Thank you for the hearts and minds here. Thank you for the love that we share for each other. God, I lift up each and every one here as I do every morning, and I pray for them. You know what they're going through. You know the struggles. You know the challenges. God, help them to know that you are there with them. Help them to see the evidence that you are real. And God, as we continue on this morning, allow us to grow closer and closer to you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start by talking about John. Now, I understand this gets a little confusing, and I promise you, when I was learning all this stuff, it was very confusing as well, because when we study the New Testament, there are two Johns that we talk about, right? There's, there's John the Baptist, and then there's the apostle, the disciple, also known as John. So to make things easier, I just want to let you know that during this series, today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about only one of them. We're going to be talking about the disciple John or the apostle John. Same thing, we use those words kind of interchangeably. So about John, actually, hold on, there's one more thing. Not to confuse you any more than I have to, but you do need to know this. You need to know that his name wasn't really John. His name was Yohanan, okay? Yohanan. You can kind of hear where Jonathan comes from in there. That's the Hebrew name, Yohanan. And anybody know his last name? Johnson. No, it wasn't, it wasn't Johnson. Just kidding. His last name, if you're interested, was Ben Zebediah. Ben Zebediah. Ben means son of, and John's father was named Zebediah, or what's the word we read in the New Testament? Zebedee. Okay, so in Matthew 4.21, we learn John's father's name. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Okay? Now, it's only in English that we call him John. We're going to continue to call him John because I don't want to keep saying Yohanan and that'll confuse everybody and all that. Okay, got it? All right, good. Now, in this series, we're going to be reading from John's gospel regarding faith and belief. And regarding faith and belief, by examining John's gospel, here's what we can safely surmise. John did not follow Jesus just because of faith. And John did not believe in Jesus just because of belief. As we're going to see in this series, John would caution all of us not to do those things either. Now, if you're with us today and the only reason you're following Jesus is because somebody told you one day you just had to follow Jesus, you just had to believe, if that's you, I have some good news for you. There's more to it than that. It's a lot better than that. You need to understand what that means also because otherwise somebody may come along and talk you out of your, your Jesus faith. And they may talk you out of it because no one ever showed you how to be talked into it. Scripture tells us that John left his father's fishing business to follow Jesus because of what he saw, not because of a blind faith. All right, hold that in your mind. We'll move on. Now, John wrote this gospel book, this gospel letter, later than all the other gospels were written. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke written much earlier than John. Scholars believe that John wrote his gospel somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D. So remember, Jesus was crucified roughly in 33 A.D. So that's 67 years-ish later. 
That's a long time later, right? That's a couple of generations. In fact, John was the only one of the original disciples that got to die of old age. The other ones died horrible deaths. And by the time John wrote his gospel in that 90 to 100 AD window, Peter and Paul were already gone. In fact, it's likely that by the time John wrote his gospel, most of his friends were gone. John was kind of like the lone survival survivor among the original disciples. But John had a story to tell, and John wrote his story down for us. And John wasn't content to just tell us what happened. He wasn't just reporting the facts. In fact, John's gospel is referred to often as the spiritual gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. It means they're, they're synonymous with each other. They're very similar. But John's gospel is very spiritual, so it's different than the first or the other three gospels. See, John not only told us what happened, he not only reported the facts, but he told us why it happened. And he told us why he wants us to know that it all happened. Let me help you understand that. For anyone who's ever had to write a paper or a report in high school, college, in the workplace, everyone who's ever had to do that, you know that your paper has to have a purpose statement. Or a, or a thesis statement. In the business context, we call that an executive summary. It kind of tells us what this whole thing is about before we read it. Well, John's gospel actually has a purpose statement too. But instead of putting it at the beginning as we're used to, John put his purpose statement of his gospel at the end of the gospel. So we're going to jump now to near the end of John's gospel and take a look at his purpose statement. And then we'll go back to the beginning of John's gospel and we'll walk through our journey with Jesus. So... This is the purpose statement of John's gospel. This is the point of John's gospel. It begins this way in John chapter 20, verse 30. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. So John sets up his purpose statement by letting us know that the disciples saw Jesus perform a lot of things. They saw Jesus perform other signs that didn't even make it into John's writing, into John's book. Which means that John was telling us, you have arrived at the end of my account of Jesus' life. And even though I've shared with you a lot of things, I didn't share with you all the things that Jesus did. Jesus did a lot more. But John is telling us, I chose to share with you these particular things that I've referred to as signs. And here's why I've done so. So he continues in this verse 31. But these, in other words, the stories, the signs he's given us in his gospel, these are written so that, here's your purpose, you may continue to believe. But these are written so that. Now in the Greek, this sentence has a connector word called ahina. And ahina indicates purpose or reason. So when you see the ahina, you know there's a purpose or reason coming after it. So John was saying, the purpose of writing this gospel is not only for you to know the facts that happened, but also for you to know the purpose of your coming to believe in Jesus. In other words, John wrote his gospel not so that you would just believe, because he said so. That's not why he wrote it, but rather... John wrote his gospel so you could travel along with him as he traveled along with Jesus and thereby be persuaded, be convinced that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. In his gospel, John wasn't just telling us 
to believe, John was actually building for us a case as to why we should believe. Believe what? John continues, so we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John said, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And as a result of your believing that and you're placing your faith in Jesus as your Savior, he continues, you will have life by the power of his name. As a result of understanding that Jesus is the Messiah and then believing and putting your faith in him, you will have life by the power of his name. That is the purpose of John's gospel. In other words, the sequence that brought John to the point where he believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be is the exact same sequence he's going to lay out for us in his gospel. All right? John's stated purpose, in his own words, was to tell us that there were certain events in Jesus' life that weren't just random events. They were signs. They were signs that do what signs do. They were signs that pointed to something much bigger and much more important. And it was those signs that served as evidence that led John to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, which led John to put his trust and faith. And Jesus. You understand that? Good. Now here's why that's so important. John didn't say, he never said, I placed my trust in Jesus and I hoped it would work out for the best. He didn't say that. Throughout John's gospel and actually throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels as well, they believed and then they disbelieved. And then they weren't sure if they still believed because they weren't that easy to convince. Remember, they went back and forth and back and forth. They believed, they stopped believing, they believed, they asked dumb questions, they believed. It just worked out that way. They weren't superstitious people. They weren't wild-eyed religious kooks. They were just people, people. And as we've seen before, at the very end, it wasn't blind faith that led them to follow Jesus. It wasn't blind faith that led them to commit their lives to Jesus. It was what they saw. It was what they heard. So in writing his message, John's message was basically, here's what got me, and I believe that you're going to find it compelling too. What John did in his gospel was not simply to just recount what had happened, a bunch of random events and encounters with Jesus, but rather John organized his entire account, his entire gospel of Jesus' life around seven separate signs proving Jesus' identity. And that's what we're going to focus on in this series, those seven separate signs. Now, one more thing before we jump in to the first sign. John chose very specifically to refer to them as signs instead of just calling them miracles. Now, they were miraculous signs. They were supernatural signs, but they were signs. The supernatural acts of Jesus, the healings, the walking on water, they weren't just random acts of kindness. Okay, they didn't just, ah, he felt like doing it. Jesus wasn't just showing off. These were signs. What do signs do? They point to things. These were signs that pointed to something. These were signs that pointed to Jesus' identity. You see, even though the signs and the miracles that Jesus performed were these shiny attention grabbers, I mean, they're all, wow, you go, holy cow, that really happened? John didn't just present them as shiny attention grabbers. All throughout his gospel, he made it real clear. These were not things that took place on a daily basis just for the sake of them taking place. 
They had a specific purpose. All of these signs took place to point people to the identity of Jesus. John made every effort to guide us so that we become enamored with Jesus. We fall in love with Jesus and not his signs, not the miracles themselves. All right, so that's enough background for today. Let's now take a look at sign number one. Now, as we take a look at sign number one, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say, I'm going to guess everybody is already familiar with this first sign, because this first sign is very widely known. Interestingly, when John wrote about this sign in 90 or 100 AD, he figured the same thing, because by that time, everyone who had heard or read his gospel for the very first time, they already knew the story that John was about to tell. They'd been hearing about it for 60 years. When John wrote it down, 60 years after the fact, this sign was already part of Christian teaching. It was already being shared around by oral tradition. It was already being preached by other leaders, people leading people to Jesus. They're already talking about this sign. Now, what's the sign we're talking about? The sign is when Jesus turned water into wine. So if you want, open your Bible, if you've got a book, if you've got an app, whatever you have, turn to John chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 2. So here's John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All right, so a couple of things first off when we read this. This wedding took place where? In a town called Cana. Which town called Cana? You know there's an Atlantic Avenue in Broward County and there's one in Palm Beach County. You ever make that mistake? When I first moved to town, I made that mistake. I was looking for Atlantic and didn't know it was in Del Rey and I was down in Broward County looking for it. So which Cana is he talking about? Hmm, you know what? We don't really know. We have a sense of which one it is, but we don't precisely know which one it was. And scholars agree, though, that it was in the northern part of the country we now refer to as Israel. And it was in the Galilee region, which meant it was adjacent to, it was nearby the Sea of Galilee. Now, by, by the way, that's the region where Jesus was from. That's where Jesus grew up. Now, to help us along, for what it's worth, the disciple called Nathaniel was from a town called Cana in that area. So it's possible that that's why they were there. It's possible that he was at the wedding as one of the original invitees. By the way, don't get hung up here. I just want you to know this stuff. It's interesting. That's all. Anyway, next we see this. When did the wedding take place? It took place on the third day. The third day? What does that mean? A lot of theories out there as to what the third day was referring to. Some say, and this is something that Bible scholars often do, and it's kind of fun to do, I guess, but some really over-spiritualize these things, and they go, wow, third day? Didn't Jesus rise from the dead on the third day? That's a reference to that. It could be. It could be true. It's tough to tell, though. It's tough to tell if that's what he was talking about. Now, other people say that it just means that the wedding took place on a Tuesday, why is that? Because, well, in those days, Sunday was considered the first day of the week, which would make Monday day two, and Tuesday the third day. It's a good theory, but it's unlikely. Because in the Jewish tradition, virgin brides married on Wednesdays, and widowed brides married on Thursdays. Nobody traditionally was married on a Tuesday. 
Also, weddings in those days were not one-day events. Why is that? Well, travel wasn't as predictable then as it is now. It was tough to predict when the guests would arrive. They might have travel problems. They might have issues with the donkeys or the camels. They might be accosted by bandits when they were traveling, walking these long distances. So you really couldn't tell when someone was going to arrive. And as a result, a wedding celebration took a long time. It often could take a week, which makes it hard for us to determine what exact day the wedding began. So the final explanation I'm going to give you is what I think is the most likely explanation. Again, people differ. But when we look at these verses in relation to the previous chapter, John chapter 1. Now, by the way, remember, the chapter numbers and the, and the verse numbers were all added much, much, much later to the scripture. So just because something's in John 1 and now we're reading in John 2, it doesn't mean they're connected. They just put those together for us so that we can navigate our way around a little bit better. But if we look at these verses in John 2 and compare them to the end of John 1 and we track the days from there, we'll get a different story. I won't take you there now. It'll just get too confusing, but I'll tell you about it. In John chapter 1, verse 35, we learned that the day after Jesus was baptized, he called Andrew and Peter. And then in John chapter 1, verse 43, the day after that, we learned that Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel. And then the third day as we see here in John 2.1, we get to the wedding at Cana. That's probably what it meant, just that third day after the baptism. Isn't this fun? Maybe not. Anyway, moving on, we also see something else here. We see that Mary, Jesus' mother, right? Also not her real name. Miriam was her real name. Miriam, Mary, was already at the wedding. And the wording we see here between verses 1 and 2 seem to indicate that Mary got there first, right? Jesus' mother was there, and the disciples had also been invited. So she seems to have gotten there first, and Jesus' guys kind of got there a little bit later. Which means that John wasn't just telling us a story. He was an eyewitness. He saw all this. And the last observation we want to make here is just how detailed this little section is. Now, the presence of this kind of detail, the third day, Jesus' mom got there first, the disciples show up later, this points to a real event. This points to something that happened in history. This isn't just a made-up story. And as we're going to see in a little bit, Mary actually had a responsibility in this wedding. We don't know what Mary's responsibility in the wedding was. She could have been a host she could have had oversight, responsibility for the catering. We don't know, but hold on to that as we move on. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, Mary said to Jesus, they have no more wine. All right. First thing to see here is this. Given the fact that these were multi-day events, they were pretty expensive. They were pretty costly. And because they were multi-day events and because they were so costly, they were carefully planned, which meant that the guests had very high expectations for the wedding party, kind of like a Boca wedding, okay? People have high expectations. This is Boca. So when the wine would run out, that's a social tragedy. People would be talking about that, posting about it on Instagram for the rest of the week. Oh, my gosh, I went to the wedding. and They ran out of wine, right? Free-flowing wine was a huge part of a wedding festivity. And running out of wine would have been a huge social embarrassment. 
And people would struggle their whole lives to recover from that social embarrassment. Oh, remember the wedding at Cana? Oh, you mean the one where they ran out of wine? Yeah, I mean, that, they would never forget that. Well, for some reason, the responsibility for the wine fell to Mary. So Mary turned to her son, Jesus. Why would she do that? Well, clearly, Mary knew that her son was resourceful enough to do something about this crisis. But what did Mary think Jesus could do? We don't know. We can have no way of knowing. It does kind of make you wonder what other things Mary had seen Jesus do while he was growing up, doesn't it? Like, she, she thought he could do something about the wine. Maybe he did other stuff when he was a kid. And this is just speculation. It's not from the Bible. Don't, don't write me letters. But maybe, you know, it would be like, Jesus, please walk the dog. Already done, Ma. How is that? I didn't see you get up and let her out. Ah, how do you do it? I don't know. That must have been cool, though, right, growing up with Jesus. I'm going to write that on my list of questions to ask God when I get to heaven. Anyway, so Mary turns to Jesus, and she says, they have no more wine. Now, it seems random, but most of us can relate to a statement like this, can't we? Jeff Foxworthy jokes about how your wife can say something as innocuous as, is it cold in here? And even though technically she didn't ask you to do anything before you know it, husbands, you're up turning the thermostat up. You ever do that? Like, no one asked me to turn the thermostat. All she said was, is it cold in here? Funny how that works. So Mary said, they have no more wine. And Jesus answers her. Here's what he says. Woman. That doesn't sound good, does it? And I'll tell you what, I've, I've heard a lot of pastors preach on this, and over the years I've heard pastors just twist themselves into pretzels trying to explain how Jesus could show so much disrespect for his mother, yet still be without sin. We're not going to twist ourselves into pretzels. Because the truth is far less complicated. This is kind of cool. The Greek word is gunai, which is where we get the word gynecologist. That's the Greek word John uses. And it is not a harsh word, and Jesus did not speak it in a harsh tone. It helps really to think of it as more of a formal way of addressing Mary. When, when I read it, I, I always think of Jesus having said, m'lady, or maybe even a light-hearted way of saying, mother. Like, it's more like that. It is absolutely not what it sounds like in English. So with that tone in mind, let's keep going. Woman. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Milady, mother, why are you bringing me into this now? This isn't how I wanted to show myself to the world. I came for a much larger purpose than refilling wine at a party. But when your mom asks you to do something, a few years ago, my mom called me to tell me that a distant cousin of mine was near death. I hadn't seen him since I was a little kid. I didn't really remember much about him, but my mom asked me to call him because he wanted to speak to a pastor before he died. Do you think I said, Mom, I don't even know the guy. I have a whole congregation of people I need to serve. I'm responsible for them, not, not my cousin. Did I say that to my mother? Have you met my mother? I did not say that to my mother. I called my cousin right away, and I prayed with him. And I officiated at his funeral about a month later. 
And why did I do that? Because my mom asked me to do that. That's why I did that. So Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She knows he's going to do it. Mom asked. That's the way that works. We Jewish boys obey our mothers. Now, when you stop and think about it, this is pretty random. And it's kind of minor. It's kind of a minor sign, isn't it? Turn water into wine? He didn't heal anybody. He didn't help anybody, really. Why would John start off with this one? Okay, so remember now that John didn't write this down until about 60 years after it happened. Until about 60 years after Jesus was resurrected. So this story actually was written more for the people who would come later than the people who had been there. It was written more for people like us than it was for the people of John's day. And we can now see that it was a perfect way for Jesus to step into his earthly ministry. And the wedding guests, they never knew it happened. The wedding guests never understood that a miracle took place right under their noses. But we know. And the story goes on and begins to make a little bit more sense. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Just stop right there. Six times 20, that's a lot of water, right? That's a ton of water. Now remember also that under Jewish ceremonial law, these ritual washings, these ceremonial washings took place constantly. They required numerous washings, required every single day. So as such, they didn't have running water, so the practice was to keep water around for these washings. And because these washings were for purification purposes, they had to have clean water. And so they used stone jars to hold clean water. Stone jars kept the water cleaner than clay jars. Clay jars are porous. Clay jars break and crack and leach dirt into the water. It's a little bit different. Anyway, the story continues. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they, the servants, filled the water jars to the brim. So up until that moment, Jesus raised no red flags. The Jews are used to having all these stone jars around, and they were used to filling them with water. That's what they always did. But Jesus was about to do something that no one had ever done before. And what he was doing here was he was foreshadowing the fact that the old covenant that God had made with his people was being renewed with something that hadn't done, been done before, which is why this is a great first sign. As the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 8.6, the ministry, of Jesus has the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. So in other words, he's saying Jesus' ministry is the superior covenant since the new covenant, the renewed covenant, is established on better promises. So John continues. Then Jesus told them, the servants, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. All right, what's a master of the banquet? Well, the master of the banquet is what we would know as today as the maitre d', okay? By the way, you know what maitre d' stands for? It's, I don't speak French, so it's maitre d'hôtel. It's, it's the, the master of the hotel. If you speak French, I hope that was okay. 
the master of the ceremonies. He was responsible for what was served. He was responsible for when it was served. He was responsible for who was served when. So the text tells us they did it, and then the master of the banquet tasted the water. This is the tension point. Get ready to taste the water. Now, if you didn't know the story, you'd think, uh-oh, he expects wine and he's about to get water. But John didn't tell us that because by the time he wrote it down, everybody knew what was going to happen. So here's what John wrote. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants knew. The servants knew where it had come from, but not the master. And then he called the bridegroom aside. So he thought the bridegroom had something to do with it. The maitre d' didn't know what happened, but the servants knew that it had been Jesus. So the maitre d' calls the bridegroom over, and he goes, dude, you've done something that no one does. You've done something unusual. Now we go to verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. In other words, my fraternity kind of did the same thing. Like you serve the top shelf stuff, you know, early in the party, and then when everybody's a little bit lubricated, you, you give them the cheap stuff, you know, the store brand stuff, and they don't know the difference. But you have saved the best till now. And the maitre d' said, I've never seen anybody do this before. People usually serve the good stuff first and save the cheap stuff until everybody's drunk and nobody will tell the difference. But you didn't do that. You saved the best for last, which, as we know, is what God did for us. Under the old covenant, God accepted the sacrifices of, of bulls and goats and lambs and birds. But he kept the greatest sacrifice until last, the one-time-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, God's people who first heard this gospel knew exactly what it pointed to. The original wine set up the coming of the new and better wine. Jesus used this as a metaphor at the wedding of Cana to say to the world, even though the world didn't understand what he was saying at the time, something new has come. That's why this is more than a miracle. This is a sign. It pointed to something and somebody, but nobody would fully understand it until later. Well, the story ends like this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus did his first sign in Cana, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples believed in him. In the Greek, the implications are more like the disciples then placed their trust in him. And why did they place their trust in him? Was it because he got them together and said, listen, guys, you got to believe. Or come on, boys, you got to have faith. No, that's not why they did it. They believed because he gave them a reason to believe. So at the outset, John established a paradigm that we're going to see over and over again in his gospel. No one ever asked us to believe without there being evidence and without there having confidence in the provider of the evidence. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So after this miraculous sign at the wedding, Jesus, Mary, 
the disciples and Jesus' brothers. We know that Mary had numerous children after Jesus, including James, as in the book of James. They all went down and stayed in Capernaum, which is a town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that was the first sign. So what do we take away from this? Well, here's today's takeaway. Our faith in Jesus does not generally come by seeing. I mean, yeah, some of us came to faith in Jesus by seeing God's hand in our lives or seeing him work through another. But we're more or less relegated to our faith coming to us by hearing. As Paul explained to the believers in Rome in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. See, we're not just asked to believe. We're not required to just take it by faith. We're invited to believe what happened based on the testimony of people who are actually there, people like John. Because in spite of all the horrors that John witnessed in his life, the persecution, the bloodshed, the heartbreak, the destruction of the holy city of Jerusalem, the enslavement of tens of thousands of his fellow Jews by the Romans. In spite of all that, John saw what happened with Jesus and John believed. And in the very next chapter, because of all John had seen, because of all that had happened, John was able to say this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now John could only say a thing like that because of his own personal experience with the rabbi from Nazareth. He knew it to be true, and he wrote it down. He was convinced that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Take a look at the word us up there that I've highlighted. That us wasn't you and me, us. It was John and the disciples, us. John and the disciples told us what they themselves saw. John told us what he concluded based on what he heard and saw. God lived with them and they saw it, all of them. John was a fisherman. John was just a bystander. John thought that the things he'd witnessed were so important that he had to tell future generations. Actually, it's it's much, much more than that. It's what we talked about when we started off this morning. By these, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. And in this series, as we move from sign to sign, I hope that you would believe and that you would come to have life in Jesus' name as well. I hope that you hear what you hear and it would have you pray, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. So now I turn from those sins and I give you my heart and I give you my life. Lord, I want to trust you and I want to follow you forever. But my hope is not that you simply take all that you've heard from me. Rather, my hope is that you took it from John, an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. 
You'll never be talked out of a faith that you weren't talked into. John didn't want you to believe just because John thought you should believe. John wanted you to believe because of the things he saw that changed the world. Amen? Please don't miss part two of Bystander. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time together. We thank you for this first sign, Jesus turning water into wine. We thank you for Jesus' earthly ministry. We thank you for John's eyewitness. We thank you that John was a bystander, that he saw it all, and he told us about it. So God, as we continue on this week, we head into a brand new week, we have this opportunity to be witnesses of your glory. God, allow us to be there, to be light, to be salt, to show love to the people around us. God, we know that only you can fix what's going on in this world. Only you are worthy of our praise and worship. So God, help us to remember that all week until we meet again in Jesus' name.